This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. I'm not exactly sure how to prepare you for this message, but this has come from a series of events over the past weeks. There's gonna be a few of you in here that are going to think it's a direct relationship to something, a conversation I had with you because I've had this conversation actually in a repeated fashion, which has caused me to have a sense that maybe I need to address it more strategically uh, for us as the body. And it has to do with uh, the enemy. And I don't particularly like to talk about our enemy, our great nemesis, uh, and I don't really like to give him any airtime. And one of the tactics that you can deal with Uh, when you are dealing with falseness in a culture is not necessarily promote the falseness, but just give the truth. And if you you also help your audience recognize that this truth eviscerates and destroys these lies, then it can expose that darkness. But you don't need to spend all your time focused on what the enemy is saying, what he is doing. The news networks are already doing that. We don't need to spend our time focused on what the enemy is up to in this earth. We are not a broadcast bureau for his evil doings. We are a broadcast bureau for the doings of Jesus and for what the Holy Spirit is up to, which is, it's an interesting tension because yes, we do need to recognize that there is an enemy and we do need to be aware of those enemies, that enemy's tactics and we need to know how to destroy them. And so that's part of the challenge in a message like this is I want to deal with how we deal with the enemy's tactics in our life. And I want to, it's a strategic message, and it's partly going to showcase how the enemy bluffs and how we believe. And so there's going to be some tensions in each of our souls in this because we're going to graze against some uncomfortable territory. Anytime you get in the enemy's territory, you, you recognize he's put all sorts of landmines around. And when we start dealing with the topic of like, say, demons, oh boy, uh, you know, just don't bring that up. That's, that's just, it's not good. And I, I agree, I don't wanna talk about them any more than you probably wanna hear about them. However, they make a loud noise and they are real. There is a movement of darkness, there is a, a scheme that is being worked against our lives individually, our marriages, our families, our churches, And so we should not be ignorant of that. It's called being ignorant of the enemy's devices. We are not, says Paul. Uh, And and sometimes I look back at that and I go, I think we might be ignorant of the enemy's devices. So when Paul says, we are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. Yeah, right. You know, who, who are you talking to? That must be the early church. Because I think for many of us, When we read certain scriptures about people creeping in unawares into the church, when we talk about false prophets and the various things, we're like, well, that was back in that day. We don't realize that we have an invasion of darkness into our environment today. The same demons that were around back then puppeteering the machinations against the church are the same ones around today. And so they're dealing with the same tactics. They're wielding the same warfare. And ironically, we have the same weapons. 
And so when we study the scripture, it's not that we need to hybridize and evolve into some super type of Christian to be able to address this thing known as spiritual darkness and spiritual war. We need to wield the exact same thing all Christians throughout the ages have had to wield. And it is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. We have everything we need to win this battle. Striking with the Ricasso. Uh, first of all, I really like the title. And I really like the picture. And we could just stop there and be like, how do you guys feel? Are you satisfied? Yeah, that was a good sermon. Just with that title and picture. Uh, so I'll, I, I will not explain what a Ricasso is just yet, but I'll get to that as we go. So I'll just sort of create some, uh, some fascination. So in my series that I'm doing in Daily Thunder during the week on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I'm going through a series called Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. I'm covering a period of time from 1914 to 1974, and there's various things that are happening in that time which are just creating cultural breakdown. And some of those things started way back uh, in a long, long time before that. It's funny because anytime you say like an anarchist movement started in 1850, well, that's... Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's sort of a, a funny statement because the anarchist movement started before you and I ever took a breath or before Adam probably took a breath, right? We don't know exactly when the war in the heavens was when Lucifer rebelled, but that was the first anarchist movement. So if you don't know what an anarchist is, that's giving you at least a little heads up there. But in the 19th century, there's going to be a movement of terrorism that is going to begin uh, in the world as a means of revolts or rebellion against governments. And so uh, Napoleon III is, there's going to be a famous assassination attempt against him in the 50s, 1850s. It's gonna fail. Uh, Alexander III of Russia is going to actually be assassinated by a bomb, a, a guy you know, carrying a bomb <laughs> blows up. I mean, it's terrible stuff that is happening in the world. And it's this rise of anarchist terrorists where the enemy wants to create fear in and through what's going to be called terrorist cells. And it was interesting because in studying all of this, which you'd say, Eric, why in the world are you studying this in the first place? Well, it's not like I'm going out of my way to find things out about terrorism. It's not my interest point at all. It's that what I'm dealing with in the cultural breakdown in our country deals with this. I mean, William McKinley was killed, and that was my sermon last week, by one of these terrorists, one of these men that is going to take it upon himself to change the course of history by dealing with one of our leaders. And so I'm going to give you some characteristics of this movement, and you're going to at first think, what does this have to do with what you were talking about? You were talking about spiritual warfare. Yeah, and the characteristics of this group are going to be decidedly similar to the way the enemy works in the kingdom of darkness. So taking credit for every evil deed, the sneaky scheme of every terrorist group. Now, for most of us, when we sin, we don't want anyone to know about it. And when someone else sins, we don't claim their sin is ours. That would be a very weird behavior. Terrorism works off of a completely other premise. And that is they want to actually get credit for every evil deed. So anything bad that happens, yes, that was us. Now why would anyone do that? So the bombing of the Royal Navy ship. So there was a terrorist from, uh, from Ireland named Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa. 
Uh, actually, he used to be from the British Parliament, and then he's going to go rogue, and he's going to be quite the character in history. But he's an Irish Fenian leader, and he was one of these first guys to actually begin to notice the importance of gaining credibility and gaining notoriety through the growing mass market of communication. And so there was, he wanted to publicly make statements that he was going to take down the British government. And so he was doing that in every opportunity, you know, he'd get interviewed, he would, you know, have press releases. And then there was a bomb that went off or something uh, happened with a Royal Navy ship. It wasn't actually uh, their group, Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa that did it. It was just an explosion in like, you know, some part of the, uh, the ship. And yet he is going to immediately go out and take credit for it. It's like, we did that. Why would he do that? because it makes it appear that he can somehow invade the Royal Navy and plant bombs. And so the notion is, even amongst the Royal Navy, that we're vulnerable. I mean, there could be a bomb on this ship. Well, they've never even been on any of these ships. They can't get on these ships. However, they want to give the illusion that they can. And so what you see is a villain wanting to take credit for everything that happens so that it would incite something known as fear. So ISIS today, this is what they're famous for doing. We did that. And as a result, it appears that ISIS is everywhere, involved in everything. The Palestinians, a terror-filled 1980. So in 1980, there was this embattlement between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And uh, so here's a picture. Doesn't that scare you a little? How would you like to run into that pack? Uh, that looks sort of like uh, the demonic horde that comes after the church too. Isn't that the mental picture we have? So this is just a funny uh, statement. I know this is gonna seem like I'm going off track, but there was a, uh, a drama series, television drama series called Dallas. Now this dates anyone who knows what this is. Uh, but there was a final episode of Dallas and the question was who shot JR? Okay, everyone, I mean, this was a huge deal uh, in this media frenzy over who shot JR. No one knew, no one knew who shot JR. And so this is November 21st, 1980. And so after this episode, we have a huge crowd. And so uh, there's going to be this question because this New York Times reporter is sick and tired of the Palestinians taking claim to every evil thing that happens. Yeah, we did that, we did that, we did that. So they asked the question, this New York Times reporter asks after this, uh, says, did the Palestinians shoot JR? And the Palestinian spokesman, just having their classic knee-jerk reaction to every question, you know, something bad happened, yeah, we did that. So it says, yes, their formal statement back <laughs> is that they shot JR. And by the way, I have a note here, T that's a lie. Technically, in the final episode of the television drama Dallas, it was revealed that Christian Shepherd, JR's scheming sister-in-law and mistress, shot him in a fit of anger. He was not shot by the Palestinians. And so as ridiculous as this is, it's the same premise when it comes to the enemy. Everything that happens in your life, you have a terrorist cell that wants to claim credit for it. That was me, says the enemy. I've got you, I'm hounding you, I'm all over the place. I can get you anytime I want. Boy, that sound like our life, doesn't it? There's a terrorist cell that wants to intimidate you. That's just a premise point, guys. Why would anyone want to take responsibility for someone else's terror attack? It builds the terrifying image. 
Because that's what it is. They want a terrifying, I know that's not correct English, terrifying is the right word, but I'm making up a word, terrifying image. They want to create and incite terror in you. They want you to believe that they have the upper hand. This is how the enemy's schemes work. He wants credit for every little thing. He wants to be talked about. He wants to be thought about. He wants to have you pondering his shadow hovering over you at every moment. He could get you at any moment. That is a lie, just as much as the Palestinians did not shoot J.R. Anarchism. We could call it the cult of rebellion. Its entire aim is to topple governments through terror and violence. So think about a government, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The enemy has no hope, we know this, of toppling that government, but that doesn't mean he's not trying. I've oftentimes said that the deceiver deceives himself. He deceives himself into thinking that he is more than he is and that he can accomplish more than he can accomplish because he's up against an impossibility, right? God Almighty and his promises and his word, he's not gonna be able to overthrow that and that's your confidence because you're a believer. He's not a believer, he's a deceiver. And if you've ever lived in deception, you'll recognize that deceivers will actually begin to believe their own lies. And so we have a deceiver who my hunches has begun to believe his own lies. And so his entire goal and agenda is to thwart the kingdom of heaven and is to topple the king of kings and his rule and his reign. And he does this through terror and violence. And I could just say, welcome to Christian history right there. That is exactly what it is. So anarchy, it comes from two root words from the Latin. Uh, an, which is, means without, and arcos, which means chief and ruler. So without a ruler, get rid of the ruler. Well, who is the ruler in this situation? Put a capital R, and his name is God Almighty specifically to us, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And so the goal is to topple that ruler in your life. This is what the enemy is attempting to do in his rebellion against the rulership of God Almighty over this universe. He is seeking to overthrow. And if he can't do that in the global sense, he'll try and do it in the individual sense. He's after you. The chief anarchist, his name is Lucifer. So look at what it says in Isaiah 13, 14, verses 13 through 14 about Lucifer. For you have said in your heart, I, speaking, Lucifer speaking, will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Uh, you know, this is the very, it's, it's the motive of the enemy and it's also his demise right here. We're exposing it right there. The, the word of God is going to go boo and show. Pull back the curtain and show exactly what motivates this one who is desirous to destroy us. The bluffer, Lucifer. It, it was interesting, uh, over the weekend we had an alumni prayer call and one, uh, there was a pastor on the call that was talking about this run that he was on. He says, yeah, we had to run around Devil's Lake and there was all sorts of bluffs around the lake. And I was like thinking, boy, that is my Sunday sermon. He just preached it right there. <laughs> so he's the bluffer, Isaiah 14, 12, 15 through 17. So he is going to say that he's all that, that he has power that you cannot defend against 
that if he somehow gains an angle or he gains an edge on your life, you can't get him out. He is a bluffer. This is what he is. A liar, a deceiver, a very good word for it is a bluffer. So here's what the scriptures say. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? Two extraordinary bluffs. So I'm going to go through these two bluffs. Bluff number one, I'm huge, says the enemy, powerful, terrifying, and unable to be resisted. Fear me. Okay, classic bluff. It's a bluff. Bluff one. And I'm going to dig into that a little deeper. Bluff two, the only way to negate my power over you is to formally, legally, and accurately renounce and revoke every single thing you ever did wrong and every, everything your ancestors ever did wrong. This is a big movement in the church right now. And it is a tough one to know how to address properly because it's based on a truth. And that is that when I open a window in my house and there's frigid cold temperatures outside and I'm trying to keep this, you know, 68 degrees, that's my preferred temperature in Colorado. I know some of you are like, way too cold. Yeah, but I prefer that. So we're trying to keep it 68 degrees in this church, right? But we open a window and it's, you know, well, this time of year, it's like 110 is the way it feels right now. It's only 95 supposedly, but wow, does it feel hot out there. And guess what? That heat is going to come in. Or if it's the winter, that cold is going to come in and it's going to mar the temperature that I am attempting to set in here. And God is doing that exact same thing in our life. And so if you could look at it legally speaking, I opened a window, therefore I have given access to the enemy into my life. Is that true? Yes. So how do I deal with that problem? How do I address it? And this is where the bluff comes in. The enemy's like, ah, oh, that's complicated. I mean, you're going to have to get a lawyer. We're going to have to work through this because, you know, you've opened that window and you, you know, have given me a lot of ground and now to get me out is going to be really hard. And so call your lawyer. We'll talk. Meanwhile, I'm going to just tell you in the meantime, before we answer that question, that's a bluff. It's true that we allowed the enemy in through that window. Our disobedience gives the enemy avenue of access. That's one of his devices. However, we need to know how the kingdom of heaven works and what causes the enemy to flee. And it's not calling on our lawyer and responding to his legalism with legalism of our own. Bluff number one, the all-powerful Lucifer, fear him. Okay, now by the way, I'm calling this a bluff, so do not think that I am saying this. This is him talking. This is the terrorist cell wanting to stake claim for every single thing that happens in your life. Wow, he is an, he is an incredible character. He is so powerful. He is able to do so much, and he loves to spread that around. He wants you to tremble before him. He wants you to have your heart, he wants to have your heart melt whenever the topic comes up. Wow, the devil, uh-oh. So I'm gonna walk through some logic points that John's gonna bring out. First John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. There is a wicked one. Now he has various names, the devil, Satan, uh, Lucifer. So we have names for him uh, and th there's more than that. And we recognize that he has something known as power. 
His power is of a different, there's, there's two types of power in, in the uh, New Testament that are described in the Koine Greek. One is a muscular army-like power. The word is dunamis. The type of power that the enemy has is what's called exousia. Exousia power is legal power. He has legal power over the children of disobedience. So when you live in sin, that's his territory. It's the kingdom of darkness, and he's the prince of that territory. And he takes his job very seriously. And so in that sense, he becomes a legalist to say, well, you did this wrong, therefore I have control. You did this, therefore, according to even God's law, I have access to you. You're a child of disobedience, you're under my care. And I'm not saying he's wrong, but I want you to know he's a legalist. He is a law um, studier only to the degree that he can penalize you because of it. He is a rebel against that very law. That's what's so ironic about the devil. However, he knows that according to that law, he has control over a territory known as darkness. I call it the trash can. Just like in your house, you have a nice clean house and everything is so beautiful and then you have a piece of trash in it. What, what's that doing here? So what do you do with it? You take that trash and you remove it from the normal area, the living area of the house, and you stick it in a zone of your house called the trash can. And the trash can, if someone was visiting your house and they opened up the trash can, they can't, it's unfair to evaluate you by looking in your trash can. It's like, so what kind of person are you? Well, you stink. That's actually why the trash can is there. If it stinks, it doesn't stay in the house. It goes into the trash can, and that shows the nature of your house. God is the same way. God has a nature to his house, and if it stinks, it doesn't belong here. It goes into the trash can. If it rebels against the house, it goes into the trash can. If it's sin, it goes into the trash can. All right? We are going to rebel, and we are going to end up not where God intended us to go. We're going to end up in the trash can because we have rejected our God. We have joined the anarchist movement. We have come under the rulership of the one known as the prince of this world. <gasps> oh no, say it isn't so. It's called bad news, which is why good news is so good. Because God, even though we could be just judged, taken out to the curb and then taken to the incinerator, which I, you know, uh, is where trash goes, right? You know, it's, that's, that's a lot better mental picture matches biblically. And yet, that is what we deserve, but God so loves us that he is going to give his only son, who is going to come and enter our zone of dirty, and he is going to rescue us. And that's part of the grand storyline here. So we know, that, this is 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So does he actually have exousia? Does he have legal authority? He does. So to deny that is missing the whole picture. Jesus is dealing with legal authorities at that cross. That's what he's dealing with. He is tearing down the legal arguments of the enemy against us. John 14, 30. The ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Now that's a strange line. But he knows that the, the, the ruler of this world is coming after him. And he is going to give himself into the hands of sinners. And what Jesus is going to say is, but he has nothing in me. Or he has nothing on me. Might be another way that we would understand it. He has no legal hold over me. 
John 16, 11, the ruler of this world is judged. 1 Corinthians 2, 12. So what's happened, in, this is in a summary form in John, is we're going to see that, yes, the enemy has authority, but Jesus is going to come and nullify that authority. He is going to bring judgment on that enemy. So when Jesus came, his judgment wasn't upon us. His ju- he, he, he did not come into this world to judge the world, That's, but he did come to judge the devil. He came to judge sin and death, and he crushed the serpent's head when he came. So what's going to happen is this gospel is going to emerge, this good news, this rescue uh, message is going to be given to us. 1 Corinthians 2.12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. And I think that's where this starts. We need to recognize we have been actually set free and that we've been given something. We need to know what that is that we've been given. Acts 26, 18, Paul, this is, I'm, I'm giving some context here. Paul is being spoken to by Jesus, the resurrected Christ on the road to uh, Damascus. And Paul has been commissioned by Christ to go to the Gentiles and to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. From the exousia, the legal authority of Satan unto God. To move them from darkness to light to open their eyes that they would recognize they no longer need to be in the trash can. They no longer need to be under the rulership of this evil one. Hebrews 2, 9, and then verse 14. Now this is a cheater's way of giving this because this is a very complex uh, flow of scripture in Hebrews, but this is what it says. You can look at it, I mean, but it's really powerful if you just summarize it. Jesus might taste death for everyone, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So he has the legal authority over death, but he is going to taste death for everyone that he might, through that death, destroy him who has the power of death, who has the legal authority over this territory. Guess what? He did it. So when we talk about the enemy, we're not talking about some grand character that is still marshalling his forces to destroy you. We're talking about one who actually has been nullified in his power. 2 Timothy 1.10, our Savior Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. So the prince of this world is judged, John 16, 11. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh, Romans 8, 3, and crucified our old man with him on the cross that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, Romans 6, 6. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body that you would obey it in the lust thereof. So there seems to be this opening, this gap, this uh, pathway that we can walk where sin no longer controls us where we are able to walk in a manner that it doesn't reign. This sin, this darkness, this power of the enemy no longer reigns in these bodies. John 14, 30, the devil has nothing in me. So that's just that one statement from Jesus. The ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. The devil has nothing in Jesus. Now, what's your position? So you're in Christ. And... The devil has nothing on Jesus. 
and you're in Christ. That's part of what the gospel is going to explain when it says that he's our righteousness. He is our legal clearinghouse of all this. So all this stuff, the enemy's accusations against us, we find refuge in Christ. Is the devil correct that we sinned? He is. However, we have a refuge from the storm of sin in our life, from the legal condemnation that is hanging over us in Jesus Christ. That becomes very important for where we're going. 1 John 4, 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. So God has changed everything. Not only has he given you a legal covering, a legal refuge from the indictments and the condemnation that is against you from the devil, but now he has imparted to you his life, his very Holy Spirit. And now you are a weapon in this world against the powers of darkness. Because not only do you have the safety refuge of his legal uh, authority and his legal clearing of your crimes, but now you have authority and power and the grace that you need to actually put down the enemy in this world. That's a scary thing for the enemy, by the way. If you were to imagine that, that he cannot condemn you, he cannot get you, and now you have authority over him. It's like little sheep suddenly having power over wolves. If you were a wolf, you wouldn't be too happy with that because you've always pushed around sheep. And now suddenly they can push you around? Whoa! Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that is the reasoning of a Christian. Psalm 27, one through three. So listen to how David is gonna reason through this. A Psalm of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? So for those of you that have been hounded by the enemy, for those of you that feel like darkness is always knocking, that you know what the truth is, but wow, there's a loud voice that is constantly sort of trying to make his way in and, and prove his case that he has power. And he's been taking credit for a lot of stuff, a lot of collateral damage in your life. It's like, see, that was me, that was me, that was me. I'm all over the place, you fear me. And what does David say? Whom, should I, sh whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Could you imagine having an army encamp against you? Because this is spiritual warfare right there. I am very aware of the fact that I have armies set out to destroy my life. And I, I say that, I could say that with a smile. Let me see if I can get my smile on. <laughs> I am not afraid of these armies that are encamping against me. Why? because I know my Lord, and I know his victory, and I rest in that. And I have had many movements of the enemy to try and cow me, to try and intimidate me. This is just my life. What I'm describing, I could give illustration after illustration after illustration personally. However, the key is let's know the truth. The truth is what sets us free. When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. 
So bluff number one. So remember, we have two bluffs that we're dealing with. The first one is that he is so powerful, so big, so mighty, says Lucifer. You know, he's, he's this terrorist cell that is taking, you know, uh, taking credit for every single thing that happens, including shooting JR. Okay, it's like, you've got to be kidding. This is a bluff, guys. So the all-powerful Lucifer, fear him, is the bluff. Bluff buster number one. I could have called this message bluff busters. Uh, that would have been perfectly fine uh, to call it that. The enemy has nothing on Jesus. That, that's a fact, guys. The enemy has nothing on Jesus. The enemy may actually have something on you. Have you been perfect today? Did you make a mistake? The enemy could have something on you. However, the bluff buster is knowing that the enemy has nothing on him. This has never been dependent on your perfection. It is not dependent on your righteousness. Victory in this battle hinges on his perfection and his righteousness. Legally speaking, that's how we blow up his bluff. The enemy has nothing on Jesus. He can't stop Jesus. He can't violate Jesus. He can't undermine the purpose of Jesus. He can't sabotage the life of Jesus and I am in Jesus. Our bluff buster of the enemy's noise is recognizing that we are in the one that the enemy has nothing on. And if you know that, the enemy cowers. He is afraid of you knowing your position because your position equates to confidence, fearlessness. Why would you fear the enemy if you know that you are in Christ. The enemy has fiery darts and he's aiming them right at you. I don't, have you ever had someone aim a, uh, a rubber band at you? And you'll still be like, and it's just a rubber band. Well, imagine a fiery arrow with the bolt bolt pulled all the way back. It's like some poison tip with like little fire lit on the end tar and it's like, ah! And you could just imagine the pain that could be inflicted upon you, the death that would follow, oh no! and yet you've been given something. It's called the shield of faith. And when you hold up that shield of faith, it repels and quells all, every fire of dark, every fiery arrow of darkness, every single one. So if you knew you had a shield that repelled all fiery arrows, it's sort of like if you were to go to Middle Earth and you know, some character like Galadriel were to give you this shield and said, no arrow can pass through this. It will deflect every single one. No ax can cut through this. It will you know, incinerate at the moment it hits it. It's like, wow, I'm gonna walk around with this thing. I wouldn't blame you, and that's exactly why you're supposed to dress yourself in the armor of God. Take up the sword, take up the shield. You have everything you need to obliterate that enemy. Do not be intimidated by his bluff. Bluff number two, Lucifer the legalist. Even if you don't fear him, you must fear the fact that you may never solve the legal code for nullifying his power over your life. Okay, now, I don't know how to get this out on the table in an easy way. Because it depends on what your background is with dealing with the powers of darkness. Because when you've been afflicted and oppressed by darkness, you're willing to do whatever it takes to get out from under that. And so there are multiple ministries out there today that are gonna deal with what's called deliverance. And it's based on truth. 
we have allowed an enemy in, and sometimes we in our heritage are going to receive a connection to the powers of darkness even through our parents or their parents or their parents. And the sins of our forefathers are visited upon us in our descendancy. We are going to carry in our lives mischief from the enemy. And you could say, you know, if you're going to speak legally, okay, I understand legally how the enemy has an access point. The key is what do we do with that? Because what the enemy is going to say is, well, <clears throat> so now that you've come to Christ, let me make something clear. I'm not going anywhere. We're like, well, I don't think you're allowed to stay. He says, so what are you gonna do about it? Well, I, I don't know, but uh, could you just like get out? He's like, no. And then you break it down and what you find out is that every time you say something, he says, well, you didn't say it right. So I'm not going anywhere. It's called the legalist. Okay, remember this guy is the anarchist, which means he doesn't care about law at all. He, he spurns the law and yet when it comes to you, he's going to hold you to it. He's gonna say, unless you say that just right, you prayed that wrong. Well, I'm not going anywhere. If you've ever dealt with this in your life, it can be very intimidating because it's like, wow, I need to get this perfect. And then you go and look for someone who can pray it perfect. Okay, what do you, what do you say? So how do, how do I say this? Uh, you, you said, I cast you out in the name of Jesus and do not return. Because if you don't say do not return, then they can return. It's like, whoa, if I don't, what else should I say then? I mean, I have to get this all right. I'm going to write this out. And I'm, here's, the, here's the challenge with this. There are legalities that we're dealing with. Soul entanglements because of sin. So the question is, you're dealing with a legalist who's gonna say, if you don't get this right, then I'm not going anywhere. Now, remember the name of my uh, message, uh, striking with the ricasso. So if you know what a ricasso is, that would make sense, but it's the equivalent of saying, even if I swing my sword and I swing it poorly and I hit you with the wrong part of it, you're going down. Because this sword I'm wielding is a supernatural sword. And even though I stink at being a swordsman, you're gone, you're done for, you're out of here. It's the confidence, not in your ability to swing a sword, but in his ability to defeat that enemy. Don't be bullied by the legalist. So the legalist, well, we could call him Lucifer. This, here's how the slick attorney works. I call him a slick attorney. If you go through Ellerslie, you'll hear me use that term a lot. So here's the slick attorney. <clears throat> Technically, you didn't tell me to leave. You just told me to get lost. I did that. I got lost for a minute, and look, I found my way back. See that turkey? What he's doing is he's playing your words against you. If you don't say this right, then he's like, oh, I don't need to do that. Technically, you didn't call me by my actual legal name. My name is the spirit of paralyzing fear. You commanded the spirit of fear to depart. That's not me. You didn't say it right. Therefore, I don't need to go. So how do you deal with that? You know how intense this is? You know how many believers over the years, over the centuries, over the millennia, have been baited by the, the legalist Lucifer, saying, if you don't do this just perfectly, dot this I and cross this T, then you can't be righteous. This is how the enemy works. And still in the church today, there's entire movements of trying to be perfect so that we can actually appease God and his standards over us. 
What is being negated when we go to legalism instead of to the cross? The cross is the nullification of the enemy's legal right. When we allow the enemy to bait us into his game, he's going to say, you need to do this perfectly. You better figure this out. You better make this your focus. What is supposed to be our focus? The enemy? Jesus Christ. What the enemy's trying to do is bait us off of center. How do you deal with a legalist? Oh, there's a key question. Do you need to play the perfection game? Some of you know what this is like in your spiritual life, where you can hear the good news, you can understand what Jesus says, but you can still be baited to thinking that it's up to you to live perfectly to actually have a right relationship with God. And guess what? Here's the challenge. It's based on a part truth. If you live with rebellion, if you live with sin and you allow the enemy in, guess what? Your life will fall to pieces. So it's not that the opposite is true, it's just that it's not true what the enemy is saying. It is not based on your perfection, it is based on his perfection. And so when we find our hiding place in Christ Jesus and in his work, which is perfect, we are able to rest and abide in that. And his Holy Spirit works in us to convict us of sin. So if we do have a failure, we don't need the enemy to tell us about it. We have the Holy Spirit to correct that. We don't need to deal with the enemy on a day in and day out basis saying, yeah, what do you have to say about it, enemy? Yeah, do you think I'm perfect enough? I guarantee you there will never come a time where he will pat you on the back and say, yeah, I guess you're good enough. He is a legalist when he has to be. The perfection game. So if you're going to deal with the enemy, here's a list of things the enemy is gonna try and convince you of. You must determine every single open window in your life. So if you have any error in your life, you better figure it out because otherwise he's coming in like a flood. Again, part truth. If you have an open window in your life, what should you do? You should allow the spirit of God to show it to you and you can close it. However, the enemy is going to take it beyond that. You must know the accurate name of every single window in your life. So there's this whole movement out there that says you cannot drive out an enemy faction against your life. You cannot drive out an oppressive demonic agenda against your life unless you can name it. I want you to ponder that just for a second. Unless you can call it by its legal rightful name, you cannot remove it from your life. First of all, I could say where in scripture does it say that? And you're going to find that it doesn't. And when you look at warfare in the scriptural sense in the New Testament, though you are going to see Jesus actually drive out a spirit of something and give it a name, it is not necessarily taught to us in the epistles when we are dealing with warfare that we are supposed to do that. This is an extra add-on addition to the text of Scripture and to the assignment of us as Christians, which demands us to have a level of understanding and knowledge of the demonic realm that is, okay, it'd be supernatural, which is what a deliverance ministry would say. Yeah, God will give it to you. But what happens in the meantime is the enemy's legend grows larger in your understanding. Because, wow, I can't deal with him. Unless I, unless I really spend a good portion of my life focusing on this, how am I supposed to know? Because what if there is more than one? And then, of course, the enemy will inflate his numbers too. Well, yeah, there's more than one. There's 10,000 of us. And so now you need to know 10,000 names? And otherwise you can't drive this demonic oppression out of your life. 
So you must close every window in your life according to the perfect standard of legalistic exactitude. Oh, you didn't close it right. So when you pray, you have to pray in a specific way. You have to drive them out in the authority of Christ's name and you need to tell them where to go and you need to tell them not to come back. You need to tell them not to come back and harm anyone else in your life. You need to name those people in your life that they can't come back to harm. Okay, I want you to follow what I'm saying here. I want you to recognize that what the enemy is attempting to do is make it impossible to get him out. Because unless you can do all this, people, your enemy has legal right to hang out and to remain as an oppressor over your life. If we follow this bread trail, it actually is increasing the power of the enemy as opposed to what God gives us in scripture. I am not saying, by the way, there's another side to this, that there is a way to pray that is very sharp. It's like you have a sword and there's a part of your sword that is designed to slice and dice. And there's other parts of your sword, like the hilt, which isn't ideal for slicing and dicing. The ricasso, by the way, striking with the ricasso, that is the dull part or the blunt edge of your blade. And so, yeah, it is not the best way to use your sword, but here's what I'm gonna say. I don't care if you know how to swing your sword perfectly. I want you to swing your sword. And when you swing that sword in faith, even if it's imperfect, I want you to know that it's devastating to the enemy. It is faith that overcomes. It is not legalistic exactitude that is going to set you free. Listen to this final statement of the perfection game. And if you do not do all this perfectly, then the enemy will continue to dominate your life. So I don't know if you guys can draw and connect dots on this and recognize how dangerous it is when we begin to create a subset of rules that are not defined in scripture, but are defined in experience of dealing with demons. There's a whole bunch of people that have cast out a lot of demons and they have their rule book of how you do it now. And so if you ever inherit one of those rule books, what is it gonna do to you? It's going to make you feel like you have to become a, get a PhD in demonic warfare to be able to address the demons in your life. Wow, this is a heavy load. Could you imagine if to be saved, you got a rule book and said, okay, you have to do this, 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 and this. Instead, it is very simple. You need to believe. The enemy hates that because it is too simple. Even a child could do that. And guess what? To repel the devil, even a child could do it. Do you see the difference? I am really tired of the machinations of the enemy and how they are encroaching upon the church of Jesus Christ today to complicate something that is actually supposed to be rather simple. How do you deal with a legalist? Hint, don't become a legalist to nullify a legalist. What would a legalist look like in this? We'll have to pray this right. I didn't pray it right. I don't think that's going to work. The moment you become a legalist and attempting to thwart the legalist is the moment his game is won. That's his entire agenda. You didn't pray that right. Now we need to pray that better. Now, here's the irony. I think there is a proper way to pray. I think there is a way to pray, just like with everything. If I were to say, you know, hitting with a, a golf, uh, hitting that golf ball into the, the hole, there's a right way to hit it and a, probably a wrong way, right? If you hit it this way and the hole is this way, ah, you know what, that wasn't the right way to hit it. And the same is true in our life. There is truth and there is that which is righteous. The key is, does our righteousness and our success in our Christian life depend on us doing everything perfectly? 
Because if it does, just imagine how that swings the emphasis of our life to us doing it perfectly. Our Christian success actually comes in a very different direction. And that is trusting that he can do it perfectly in us and we abide in him and we're sensitive to his spirit. When he corrects us, we're corrected. When he says, don't do that, we don't do that. When he says, go here, we go here. But we don't lean on our own understanding. We actually lean on his and we trust him and we rest in that and the Christian life is one of joy and freedom because of it. How do we deal with a legalist? You don't attempt to match him sword for sword, shield for shield, and javelin for javelin. Now that comes straight out of a story in the Old Testament where you have a situation where Saul, we could call Saul the legalist, he's the first, you know, we always talk about first and second, Saul and then David is the second, and the first is flesh, the second one is spirit. Saul is staring at Goliath in the Valley of Elah, and he's been boasting for 40 straight days, this, this giant. And Israel is trembling before his boasts. And this is precisely how many of us feel today. It's like we have, a, we have an army, we know that, we know the Israelites can fight, but we don't know how to take out this giant because he's the champion of Gath. And he is, you know, talk about measurements of cubits. If it's a short cubit, he's over nine feet tall. If it's a long cubit, which we don't know what measurement of cubit it was, he's over 12 feet tall, 12 and a half feet tall. Yeah, that would intimidate all of us. And that's the enemy's game is to boast with a bluff in the Valley of Elah. This guy is susceptible. It's just, there's only one guy that seems to know that. And that's a little guy in the storyline named David who knows his God. And David isn't gonna go out there and fight him tactically the way that Goliath says he needs to. Hey, I have sword, spear, and javelin. I expect you to meet me with sword, spear, and javelin. David shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't care what you have. I don't care how tall you are because I am going to meet you in a different way. It's in the name of the Lord my God. You see, the way we do our battle isn't on the enemy's terms. I don't care how he comes and boasts in your valley and says how, what he wants to do because your instinct is Saul. And that is you need to wear this armor, you need to have this sword and shield. Whoa, you don't fit into this very well. Well, unless you can, I don't think you can defeat this guy. And David throws it all off. And he goes to a brook and picks up five smooth stones and he uses something that God has trained him in already. And when he was learning to take care of sheep, he had to deal with these varmints, these wolves and these bears, and these lions and bears, sorry, I put wolves in there. These lions and these bears, and he knows how to do that. And that's the same thing. In your younger season of faith, with your childlike faith, God's saying, yeah, like that. But what about these more complex situations? Just go back to the way you shepherded. Remember that stuff you did, just had faith? Yeah, that. You knew that I'd assigned you to that post? You knew that if you went after that lion, he was a goner? Yeah, like that. So listen to David. 1 Samuel 17, 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistines, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. A head in the Hebrew understanding is authority. I don't care if the enemy has had authority over your life because maybe your generations past have given it up or because you yourself have yielded to sin in your life. I don't care what the history is. 
How you approach that enemy is of the utmost importance, and I'm going to encourage you to take a page from the storyline of David. You come to me with sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. Let me re repeat that. The Lord does not save with sword and spear. The Lord does not save just through intellect and knowledge and a systemal understanding of how this all works if you don't get it right. It's like you can't drive a car until you become a mechanic. It's like, where does it say that? You don't need to know everything about the mechanics to know that this car works and it can get me from here to there. That's exactly the way faith works, guys. You don't need to know all the intricacies and all the legalities that the enemy has whipped up and all his arguments. It actually means nothing. If he's present, he needs to go. And he goes in the authority of the name of the Lord of hosts. His name is Jesus Christ. Did I finish this one, by the way? Whoa, 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 where am I? Sorry, guys. Oh, wait, wait, I did have one more line there, sorry. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. I want you to circle that in your soul. The battle is the Lord's. If you need to stick that on your refrigerator or on some wall in your dorm room, the battle is the Lord's. It's not yours, it's his. You are in him, so therefore you fight your battles in that position of being in the armor of Christ. Psalm 25 through nine. We will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. I love that statement. This is like victory. We rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So what you're seeing in both of these statements is that there is sword and spear and javelin that you could lean on. There are chariots and horses that you could trust in. But we don't do that. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's not all these other things that we could bring to the table to be sharp in battle. It doesn't mean that a horse and a chariot or a sword and a spear is bad. It just means that we, in our weakness, have the greatest strength in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. So here's our second bluff. If you don't perfectly, legally, and properly extract the devil from your life with fastidious exactitude, then he's here to stay. And I'm calling that a bluff. And here's my bluff buster number two. It's not legal exactitude that removes the devil. It's not the perfection of revoking phrases uttered, nor is it the perfect enunciation of each demonic name of every demonic operator. The secret is faith. 
in the name of Jesus and simple trust that he and he alone delivers a soul from the enemy's power. And some of you could say, well, that sounds too easy then. Say, exactly. Even a child could do it. We are not intimidated by this enemy. His head was crushed. He is defeated. He has nothing on our Lord. And we are hidden in our Lord by faith. Therefore, the legal uh, arguments the enemy has fall flat against our lives. James 4, 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now that is far too simple, guys, especially if you've spent all this time studying how to get rid of the devil in your life. It's like you're supposed to submit to God and then resist the devil. Just like, no. In the name and the authority of Jesus, no. Uh, now some of you, we're gonna say, well, I've tried that. And here's what I would say. To all of you that say this doesn't seem to be enough because that's the enemy's bluff right there. You do it, and then you do it again, and you do it again, and you keep doing that resistance. The enemy has no ability to defy the name of the Lord Jesus, none. You smack him in the nose as many times as he desires to come back and mock you. He, his nose will eventually ultimately be broken off, you know, if he keeps doing this, and he will pay a great price for trying to return to the scene of the crime. Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So how do you stand against the wiles of the devil? You put on the whole armor of God. Well, who's the armor of God? Jesus. You wear Jesus by faith, and that's what Christianity is. What's your position? You could say, I'm in the armor of God. That would be just as accurate of a response. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So what should you do about it? Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So like I said before, I am not saying that there isn't an accurate way to address the devil in the authority of Christ's name, and to tell him exactly what is going to happen to him and where he needs to go. I'm not even saying that's incorrect. I'm saying for those of you that are unlearned in this, I do not want you to tremble before this enemy. And I want you to recognize that even a child can resist this devil. Brother Andrew and his VW Beetle. Do you guys remember that story? I love Brother Andrew. Sometimes, so he has this beetle. I have a, a picture of it here. Uh, but... He's going to cross into uh, Soviet Russia during the Cold War in this. He's going to go through those, uh, those crossings, uh, you know, at the border crossings, supernaturally, time and time and time again. And, but this beetle, he, they call it the miracle car, because it didn't work off of normal mechanical wisdom. It worked off of supernatural mechanical assistance where they would sometimes just stop and go, well, we have no other choice to fulfill God's purposes in our life. I guess we need this thing to run. And it would, and it kept running for decades. I mean, this is the most extraordinary story of a car. And if you're a mechanic, it really bothers you because you're like, that's not how it, how it works. That's a, you have to be perfect in your mechanics. I mean, if, if you don't have this right, then that's gonna blow out this. And if you don't do this, I mean, you're gonna be on the side of the road. Yeah, 
That's right. It's not that it's not correct that there's a proper way to handle mechanics. And the same is true in the spiritual side. I'm sure that there is a proper way of handling every single issue that you have that is coming against your soul. It is not the diminishment of that. It is the presence of something greater, and that is faith. Childlike faith that if you've been given an assignment and you need to have that assignment succeed and you don't exactly know how to be a mechanic in this situation, you have everything you need. Well, I don't know how to do mechanics. You don't need to. You need to know God. And if you know God, you have everything you need right now. So sometimes he didn't know mechanically how to fix that VW Beetle, but he did know the God who is greater than all mechanical failures. You're gonna have mechanical failures in your praying. You're gonna have mechanical failures in your life delivery of all of this. We're an imperfect lot that are called upon to deliver a perfect expression of the kingdom of heaven. Whoo, well, in the world are we supposed to do that? So here's that beetle, as I said before. So listen to this, this is his trade, this is Brother Andrew's trademark prayer as he approached the border crossing in his VW Beetle. Lord, in my luggage I have scripture I want to take to your children. So he was smuggling Bibles into Soviet Russia. Lord, in my luggage I have scripture I want to take to your children. When you were on earth you made blind eyes see. Now I pray, make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see those things you do not want them to see. I like that prayer. Now, you could say, how am I supposed to use that prayer? Well, it's not necessarily the words of that prayer I'm asking you to use. It's the faith in that prayer I want you to use because that's how he crossed borders. That's not how you cross a border. By the way, if, if we were to technically do an analysis of the best way to cross a border, we wouldn't come up with this prayer. We'd be like, that is the most ridiculous idea. You're just going to, he, he actually, in certain situations, stuck the Bibles out on the seat and said, well, God, I guess you're gonna to have to show yourself powerful here. And they couldn't see it. That is not the way that we would encourage anyone to do it. It was an imperfect, you could call it an imperfect way of carrying out God's assignment, but it was with faith which made it the perfect way. Faith in Christ trumps the legal claims of darkness. This is actually the message of the gospel right there. The enemy has a claim over your life. He's the prince of the power of darkness. You are his. You sinned, you die. It's called the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. He's, he has control over death. He has power over death. That's his territory. And Jesus comes in with his gospel message. He says, yeah, but they believed, so they live. Boom, it trumps it. Legal, it's a legal argument. You have a legal argument, and that's faith. Faith in Christ is actually that which trumps everything the enemy is trying to wield against you legally to say, no, you didn't do that right. No, that was incorrect. He is correct. Even if my praying stinks and I'm not saying it just the way I'm supposed to, one thing I know is you're defeated. Jesus Christ rules. He is the Lord of hosts and I come at you in his name. Striking with the Ricasso. So that's the name of our message. It took this long to get to it. So the dull edge works just as well as the sharpened edge, if it is swung vigorously in faith. Now, if you're a swordsman hitting with the Ricasso part, I have a picture on the screen of the Ricasso part. It's not sharpened, it's dull, it's more decorative than anything. It's like, no, 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 oh, you don't hit with that? Yeah, that would be a really bad idea, right? What's it gonna do? Well, you know, the swordsman that you're fighting is gonna go, ha, you know, you idiot, you know, take this. <laughs> That's what a good swordsman would do. If you try and hit with that part of your sword, you're, you're, you deserve what you get. 
is exactly what we would all think. We don't need to be master swordsmen. With the scriptures, with our faith, we just need to have childlike faith the size of a mustard seed and the enemy's going down. It does not mean our faith won't grow. It does not mean our swordsmanship won't increase. Introducing the power of the imperfect swing. Give God the best you know to give. With all the faith you have, he takes it from there. Romans 8, 26. The Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. You know, like when we're swinging and we're hitting with the ricasso? Yeah, like that. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Boy, does that feel like what we struggle with when we're dealing with this oppression of the enemy? I'm not exactly sure how to address this, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. This word for intercession in that context is huperentuchano. It's one of the most fascinating Greek words. If you tried to say that, I don't know what it would sound like, hyperentigchano, uh, but it's huperentuchano, to intercede on behalf of another. The Spirit is going to do this when we don't know what we ought to pray. The mental picture or the visual picture in the Greek is that of an archer, a little boy who's trying to pull his bow, but he doesn't have the strength to pull it. If you don't have the strength to pull it, you don't have the strength to shoot it, and accurately especially. And so a father is going to huprentuchano. He's going to overshadow his son, and he's going to put his hand over his hand on the bow, and he's going to pull back with him, and he is going to aim it and then release it. And it's the son shooting the arrow, yes, but it's actually the father's enabling power, his huprentuchano, that's going to enable him to hit it accurately. You don't know how to shoot the bow as you ought. But the Spirit of God will hooper into Kano, and as you do pray, and as you say, Lord, help, that he will oversee that process and help you pull that bow, and you will hit a bullseye, even though you in and of yourself are not very good at shooting a bow. Oh, by the way, I need to give another illustration. This is the, the putt-putt one I gave it to the students earlier this year. It's, it's great. It really is a good mental picture because some of us don't use bows, right? It's not a, a good one, but putt-putting? Okay, now we're talking about a cultural understanding. So I had, when I, when I had like four little kids. We didn't have recent Lily home. And so Hudson maybe is like four. So we're like little, little ones, maybe five. Okay, so we have little, little ones and everyone loves to go putt-putting. And when we go putt-putting, you know, the kids like hit the ball into the bush and various things. The ball's not going where it's supposed to. And then they see daddy, you know, and it just goes like right in, right? It's like everyone's impressed. It's like, whoa, how did he do that? And so one of the kids, I don't know which one it was, finally decides to seek out some help from daddy. It's like, Daddy, could you help me? I'm like, absolutely. So I hoop her into Kano, and I fix their hands on the, the putt-putter, and we go back and we say, ready? Ready, here we go, boom. And we hit it, and it goes in. And then the next kid lines up and goes, Daddy, could you help me? <laughs> and, you know, that's the wisest thing we could ever do. And our putt-putting skills, you know, for us to get a good score on our scorecard doesn't hinge on our ability to do this perfectly in the kingdom of heaven. It depends on us submitting to him and saying, God, could you help me? Because I don't know how to deal with this enemy in my life. He says, I would love to. Our beautiful, wonderful, saving God, the one who is able to take our imperfect swing of the sword and translate it into a perfect swing of the sword, the one who can take our imperfect putt and stick it in the hole every time. Romans 8, 26 through 28, likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession, huprentuchanos, for us, with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts 
knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So there is one of the most famous scriptures right there that is in this context. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So I have it on the screen. It says all things work together for good. And I'm going to say including our faith-filled imperfect prayers. That God will even take our imperfect praying, whether that's a prayer of, you know, request to his throne, whether that's a prayer of, you know, triumph, whether that's a prayer of battle. And he will take that imperfect prayer and he will steer it to hit the bullseye. The message, a message to the devil. Don't you love it when we can give a message like this to the devil? This sounds good. Uh, we may not be very good with swinging our swords yet, but we have confidence that even if we strike with the ricasso, that it is enough to silence you, remove you, and send you packing. And by the way, if you should choose to come back and test our resolve, we'll be working on our swordsmanship. So next time, it'll hurt even more. Oh, I like it. God is perfect, yes, but he specializes in using imperfect vessels. That's us. So this is something, I better get off it so you guys don't cheat and see it. So this is something I worked up a few years ago and I, I was actually digging around trying to find, I couldn't remember what sermon it was in and I was typing in John Hopkins University neuroscience program. I couldn't find it anywhere because it wasn't in my notes. But I remember I was in uh, uh, Jimmy John's quite a few years ago, like 10 years ago, and on the wall they had this neuroscience study that if you take a paragraph and you take every word in the paragraph and fix the first and the last word, first and last letter in each word, and then you can jumble all the middle letters, and I mean, it's really hard to imagine this, but you can read it. Even though all the middle letters are jumbled, that is like so preposterous. And I mean, I was like reading through the paragraph on the wall at Jimmy John's, I'm like, what? I understand what that's saying. It doesn't make any sense because all the words are misspelled. And yet I knew what it was saying. And so I'm gonna read this for you. As humans, we don't appear to be the best carrying devices for the message of heaven, do we? Why doesn't God use angels instead? Or for that matter, why doesn't he just do it himself? Why doesn't he just come down in a cloud of glory and boom with a voice of thunder? But he has indeed chosen us and all our jumbled weakness to be his ideal communication vessels. That said, if he is going to use us, he must first establish two things in our life. First, a firm belief in the word of God in text. And second, a firm belief in the word of God made flesh and what that word of God in flesh did for us 2,000 years ago on that cross. When those two things are established, it's the equivalent of having the first letter and the last letter of every word in this paragraph fixed and established. The stuff in the middle is often jumbled, but the message will still perfectly get through the imperfect vessel. Isn't God amazing? Isn't that remarkable? How did we just read that? That is his picture of the Christian life right there. How could the perfect message be understood in this world? How could the devil get the clear message from us that we're resisting him if we don't do it right? Well, if you have some fixed points of reference and you know the word of God is true and you know that the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ has done the work and that he has crushed the head of the serpent, you're in good working order, guys. You have everything you need to take it to the next level and push that enemy back. We're gonna finish with this, Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. 
So he's not just going to do it at the level we're even hoping he will do it. He'll do it exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think because our asking and thinking is small, it's jumbled, and it's weak. His answer is so superior to our asking. When we pray, even in our limited understanding, but we pray with our five smooth stones and we do it in faith, he will bring down giants. That's what he does, and he's very good at it. Father, bring down the giants in our life. I pray that where the enemy has tried to confound us and tried to hinder us from pushing him out, Lord, I pray that a message like this would reinvigorate us to recognize this doesn't depend on our perfection. This depends on yours. It doesn't depend on our ability, our power. It depends on yours. Lord, do it in our life. Drive that enemy back. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.